The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Good morning, chapel family. Happy Easter. For those of you who grew up in the church, if you, here's what we do. I say he is risen. You say he is risen. Indeed. Now that we all know the rules, he is risen. Awesome. And now I did not realize really until this morning that that's not really a church-wide thing. That's a very Presbyterian, congregational type church thing, and then some Baptist-ish, because the first thing that my wife did when I woke up this morning, it's 5.30 this morning, I was trying to be tiptoe quiet, and all I see her is just lean over like death and say, he is risen. And I was like, indeed, go back to sleep. Well, this morning is my favorite day of the year because it's about my favorite person. And every Easter, the same thing happens. People come to church expecting a familiar church story, and that right there already begins to make me want to change things. So we're going to pray, and we're going to look at the crowds at the cross. We're going to look at four people specifically who were around the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to see how we can draw closer to Jesus because of them. So let's pray and get into the message Father, we are here this morning with thankful hearts, celebratory hearts, grateful hearts for all that you have done for us, that you would love us so much that you would send your son to die. We celebrate today the resurrection. Lord, help us to see ourselves as objects of your love, as people who you are pursuing, regardless of what we have gone through in our past, what we are struggling with in our present, and what the future holds Be our loving Father this morning. Lord, help us to shake off the shackles that would bind us to brokenness and sin. Free us today. Free us by the mighty, mighty power of your compelling love. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's four characters who I adore in the crucifixion story. And some of them you may know. So when I say Peter, most of you know Peter, right? Walked on water never took his foot out of his mouth. Some of you are married to a Peter. I love Peter, and I'm not saying that it's only the husbands and wives could be Peters too, just so we're fair. Okay, equal opportunity church. I love Peter's story because of the pendulum swings. Peter was one of the people who was always near Jesus, and I always ask myself the question, I wonder what happened before before Jesus met this person, and then when the Bible leaves something out of a story, I'm filling it in with my Jerry Seinfeld sitcom-esque version of what happened, okay? So first I wonder, what is Jesus thinking when he picks Peter? He knows Peter's going to be one of his very best friends. He knows Peter's got constant foot-in-mouth syndrome, yet he picks Peter, and I love it because on that night, as the best friends were sitting around the table, the week of Jesus' death, Peter is there, and Jesus says, One of you is going to betray. All of you are going to scatter. Enter foot and mouth. Peter says, Lord, I will never fall away. Now, Jesus knew he was going to say that. Jesus knew that he would eventually fall away. And Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Three times, Peter. And if you're anything like Peter, some of you have that Peter-ish mentality. I have a little bit of that. If you're a very good starter at things, like you just have all these ideas and you will run headlong into something without making any plans, you're a Peter. Peter said, I I would never do that. 
He was bold, he was brash, and he went out and when Jesus was taken from him, I can only imagine the scene because Judas comes in with the betrayal. The disciples are like, we knew he was the bad guy. We knew it. I never liked the way he looked at at me. I never liked the way he looked at the money bags. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets betrayed and, and some things are happening. The guards are rushing in. Peter, the bold, grabs a sword and hacks off one of the guards' ears. He's probably fired up. I told Jesus I would never, ever leave and deny him. I took an ear for Jesus. And then things get really weird when Jesus picks up the ear and super glues it back to dude's head. And Jesus says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. Peter had this boldness and this brashness about him. But then when Jesus was taken, he began denying Jesus. First, the servant girl says, aren't you one of those Jesus followers? No. And then she stirred up the crowd. And the crowd said, aren't you one of those Jesus followers? And, and he did. He put on his non-Christian face. He said it began swearing and saying bad things and denying Jesus. And then the rooster crowed after he had denied him three times. And Peter says, fell down and wept. There's a, another character in the story that's next. And you can't really see him because I had to make a silhouette because he's in his pajamas. There's a character the night Jesus was betrayed, and all we read is is this crazy story that this man, a young man, followed Jesus with nothing but a linen on his body. And when Jesus was betrayed, it said they seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away, as the southerners say, naked. And then it goes away. That's it. And I've always Because if you do this thing that I do, where you think, what happened before, what happened after? Jesus is betrayed. The swords are flying. The ears are falling. Peter is screaming. Everything is in chaos. And there's a guy there in his pajamas. And then pajama man begins running away. And somebody grabs said pajamas. And then all that the eternal word of God that will never go away says about you for the rest of time is, you ran away from Jesus naked. And then it cuts to the next scene. But, but I used to run and play basketball. I know that you can't run forever. So I'm always thinking, what happened when that guy ran out of air? Like when he was tired at the end of the road, when the soldiers were a distant memory, he said, I don't need to be near Jesus. What happened to him when he finally stopped at the edge of a town and was like, oh my gosh, you guys, I'm naked. Well, what is, what is going on? in this scene, and why would God put these stories in the Word for us? Why do we need to have one verse in the Bible about the guy who got stripped of his pajamas because he was running in fear? Why? Why do we have to have a best friend of Jesus, someone who is bold and brash but can never complete the tasks and always does things wrong, foot in mouth, ears chopped off, always saying the wrong things, doing the wrong things, walking on water, sinking, coming, rising, going, Why would God choose people like this? Well, because he chose people like you and me. There's two more characters, and then we're going to bring this all together. Everyone knows the guy, his first name, Pontius, last name, Pilate. Thank you, church people. Pilate was the judge. He stood in judgment of Jesus. I mean, the arrogance to stand in judgment of the God of the universe is astounding. And he said to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said it so. And then he said, tell me about truth. Quies veritas. What is truth, Jesus? 
he was asking the person who created everything, the, the source of truth, what is truth? If Jesus had a middle school sensibility, he would have just said, you're looking at it. But he didn't. He just stood. And Barabbas traditionally would release one prisoner on the day, the, whole, the Holy Day celebration. So he asks the crowds, and this is where we come in, the crowds at the cross. He says, who do you want? Barabbas, the murderous thug, or Jesus, the king of the Jews? And he leaves it to the crowds. Crowd mentality is, is very mob-like. If you've ever been to a sporting event, you, you might have experienced this. No, it doesn't matter what sporting event. It could be going to a Buccaneers game where there's professional players, or it could be going to a Little League game with a bunch of fired-up parents. It, it doesn't matter. Once the crowd mob mentality gets going, you can see it rubbing off on people around you. You see crazy flip in the switches of people's eyes. I've been at games where I'm not even a fan of the team, and I end up cheering, and it's like an out-of-body experience. I'm thinking, why am I yelling for this team? I don't know. Give me some face paint right now. I love this so much. And the religious people stirred up the crowds as Pilate was saying, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And they shouted, we want Jesus. Crucify him. Crucify him. I, uh, one of my favorite sermons I ever preached was called Shackles. And I imagine that when they were both in shackles, probably the, the cuffs here, the cuffs here, the, the bruises on their wrists from being drugged by the shackles and, and probably a chain down to their ankles. And Barabbas deserved them according to the law at the time. He was a murderer and a rebel. He had incited rebellions against the Roman Empire. He had rallied up the people. And he had been imprisoned longer than Jesus because Jesus was just grabbed. And, and there they are. And, and I've known some people in my life that when they got off the hook, they kind of looked like, yeah, I got off the hook. I can't believe I got away with this. And I don't know if that's Barabbas, but I picture Barabbas that way. It's just like toothless, scars, angry, just blood crusted from the last battle in prison he had. And he's probably thinking, they, they chose me. Yeah, Jesus, they must really hate you. My people want me, and the shackles come off. And what the Bible never says is that, is that Barabbas doesn't go to Jesus and say, thank you for taking my place. Thank you for not saying anything, for, for not doing what, what you could do, for not giving a case for yourself. You just stood here, you fool, and Barabbas walks away is all we know. That's all history gives us. That's all the Bible gives us is that he is freed, the murderous thug, and Jesus stands and stays. I love Peter. He's a fool sometimes. That naked guy running, we know him, as, his, as history tells us, as the author of the Gospel of Mark. The guy who ran away naked wrote a book of the Bible. That's probably why he didn't put his name in it, because it's his book. He was like, oh, there was a guy. Barabbas, the murderer, probably greeted by friends, going out to start his next rebellion. And here's what we need to know today as we look at these crowds, that we are in the midst of the crowds. You and I. Some of you 
Some of you are the Peters, like me. I'm a Peter. Jesus says, jump off the boat. I will jump and sink. Jesus says, I want you to believe and listen to my words. I want to chop off people's ears. But I I take comfort knowing that Jesus picked Peter and Jesus picked Judas, the betrayer, and John, the beloved head leaner on her, and the tax collector swindlers. I think that we've lost track somewhere. and we, We believe that Jesus only picks the nice and shiny. And, and if you've been coming here for any amount of time, you know that I don't like that picture of Christianity. That Jesus did not come for the nice and shiny. Jesus came for the deniers. Jesus came for the runners. Jesus came for the people who were in shackles and deserved to be arrested and killed, but were instead freed. Jesus came for you and for me. Jesus, as one preacher puts it, had to stand in the place so that the Father could treat Jesus as Barabbas deserved, so that the Father could treat Barabbas as Jesus deserved. And this is what Christianity is at the core. This is why we are celebrating Easter, because there was an exchange. You are in the crowds at the cross with Peter and Judas and the naked man running and Pilate. We stand in judgment of others. Pilate is the one who stands trying to make the right decisions, doing justice. Some of us have known people like that. We know the people who are the look down at your nose because I'm better than everybody types of people, right? And does anyone like those people really? No, because then we look down our nose at them. And all of a sudden, this thing that we're doing, we get caught up in the crowd mentality where one church can say, we're not like this church, and another group can say, we're not like those Christians. Another group could say, well, we have faith, and the other group could say, well, faith is ridiculous. And all of these groups are just casting and judging and holding the weights in their hands. All the while, Jesus stands silently and says, I will stand right here, and I will take every act of hatred upon me and my cross. I will take every denial that Peter has done and that you have done, the denials, whether they're explicit or implicit, and I will die for those denials. I will take every time you ran from me with nothing on you, and I will grab you at the end of that run when you're heaving for oxygen and let you know that I am here and I have died to clothe you with myself, with my righteousness, with my love. Pilate, I will take your arrogant stand as judge over me, and one day you will see who I really am. Could you imagine when Pilate died and saw Jesus face to face? Pilate who stood pompously with his Roman armor where they had the six-pack fakely girded in because they wanted to have that appearance of masculinity. And then when Pilate dies, to see Jesus, the only scarred guy in eternity, stand there with scars and holes in his hands and feet and say, if he had the high school, middle school mentality, how do you like me now? I mean, what what does Pilate do at that point? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I asked you what truth was. You you, you are truth. I asked you if you were the king of the Jews. You're the king of everything. Why didn't you just tell me? Because Pilate, his backstory is that his wife came to him and said, Pilate, I had a dream, sweetie. Don't, Don't do anything bad to this Jesus guy. I had a dream. Now, fellas, if your wife has a bad dream, just go with it. Just give in. 
Just say, sweetie, I believe you. I'm going to do whatever you said. Because the, one of the only examples we have in Scripture is this one. And I, and I can't fathom what Pilate's face was like when he stood before Jesus. But Jesus stayed at the platform for Pilate because he loves Pilate. Jesus stood as Barabbas was freed from his shackles because he, he loves Barabbas. It wasn't the crowds that set Barabbas free. You may think that, but the Bible is very clear in Acts 2. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And in Acts 4, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And here's the key to this verse. They were ordained to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is moving the crowds along. God has orchestrated the entire betrayal and the running and the ear cutting and the judge Pilate standing over Jesus arrogantly and Barabbas going free, smirking with evil back and Jesus standing and saying, I'm going nowhere because this is God's plan to love the world. This week I was praying through the the church directory and I made that little video up there. Some of you said, you didn't spell my name right. You didn't put me in there. I didn't add everybody on the church directory but I was praying. So I'm sorry if your name wasn't on the directory. I just had to make it a 32-second video for the song. But I prayed and I said, God, all I want this Sunday is that people would walk away and know that they are more loved by you than they knew when they walked in. Because if you look at these people, if you look at Barabbas and Peter and the man running who left everything to get away from Jesus, these people are me and you. The brash denier, the prone to run, the skeptical truth seeker, the shackled criminal. And then I've just got to hit my pet peeve because it's Easter. Then Christians will say, well, yes, I'm so glad God loves me. We know the verse, the end zone verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But so many people that I meet start with that verse They hold up the card and they say, I am for Jesus, Jesus is for me. And then they get into church and for some reason, it's like they set down the card and forget about God's love and they find themselves stuck in bondage, stuck in shackles, stuck denying, stuck doubting. They find themselves stuck in the characters around the cross and they say, I've just got to get out of here. I've got to work really hard to get myself out. I've got to go to another Bible study. I've got to get another self-help book. I've got to watch a show. I've got to get out. I've got to get out. And this drives me crazy Because we realize that we are saved by grace alone. Barabbas, there's no record of him turning around saying, thank you, thank you. When Peter denied Jesus, said he fell down and wept. The next thing we see is that he sees the resurrected Jesus. And in the next scene, he's having breakfast with the resurrected Jesus on a shore. And Jesus is quizzing him. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Jesus undid the three denials with three questions of, do you love me, Peter? And some of you today are thinking, my life is just not right. I've just got to come here because I want my kids to be more, because I want my marriage to be better. If all you're doing is trying to just take the principles of Christianity to make your marriage better, to make your kids better, to make your job better, but you're leaving Jesus at the cross and you're not going there, you will fail. Because it is only the power of Jesus that can come into your life. 
Jesus dying on the cross is not just a cute story. It's a story of the Son of God, the master and creator of the universe, dying on a cross, going down to hell, kicking in the gates of hell like Spartacus from 300, and setting captives free. This is what he did for you when you are at, hold for it, your absolute worst. When you were the most unlovable, when you were the most cantankerous, when you were the most broken, when you were the most sinful, when you were at the dredges of the barrel, that's when the God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit said, I love them. I love them so much I'm going to go down there and get them and I'm not going to leave them there. But so often, so many of us forget that that is the radical nature of God's love. It is this radical it is this scandalously amazing. His love is deeper and wider and higher and, and more vast and massive and majestic than you could ever fathom. And for some reason, we start with it and then we leave it on to do this Christian thing. I just got to be more devoted. I just got to do more self-discipline. I just got to read my Bible more. I just got to pray more. Those are good things, but they're not the thing. If you get caught in the trap of doing what the crowds do, I fear that we've got a dangerous crowd in Christianity today. And I don't, I don't want it for me. I don't want it for my kids. It's not about the American dream. I recently told somebody, I said, I don't care if my kids graduate with a terrible GPA. Because I wasn't a model student. My 10th grade year, I was averaging a whopping 1.6. That's how I know Jesus can use messed up people. But I said, I, I, don't, I don't mind what my kids' grades are. Like, C's get degrees. Kids, don't take this home and use this against your parents. Okay, get A's. But, but I, I was really thinking about it last week because I, I put this pressure on my kids, get good grades, get good grades. And I said, wait, what am I creating? So now I've got this new thing. My only goal for all three of my kids is that when they graduate high school, I want them to be able to lead someone to Jesus and lead a Bible study. That's it. They could get a D in math because I got D's in math and I'm Okay. They can get a C in English. But if they can leave high school and they know how to share the good news of Jesus with somebody in an engaging, compelling way and then sit down and open the book to anywhere in the book and say, okay, I know how this passage points to Jesus because this whole thing is all about Jesus, I'll be pumped. I don't care if they never score soccer goals again. I, I don't care if, if, if you as a person have to go through difficult times if by the end of it, the crucible of God's love for you has made you addicted to Jesus. I don't want it for any of you. I don't want you to have to go through life in the painful things to be the denier, the runner, the skeptic. Those are all not necessarily bad things, but if we get caught up in those ways of living and we don't turn to Jesus, we forget where true power comes from. You and I are no match for the power's of hell, and the urges of sin on our own. We will not overcome it, ever. It is only through Jesus. It is not our self-discipline, our devotion, our self-control that will save our marriage or our kids or our job or our family. It is in Jesus alone, Jesus who took your place. Jesus who was denied so that you could be accepted. Jesus who was shackled so that you could be set free. Jesus who died to clothe you in his goodness because prior to that we were only clothed in our own fallenness. 
Jesus who stood on the platform and said, take me. So often we beat ourselves up. We say, God, I, I can't come to you. I'm, I'm too ashamed. I ran. I denied. God, I, how can I do this again? How, can I, how could I ever stand before you? And he says, I love you. I proved it. God, I, you don't know what I've done. No, no, I know what you've done. I, I went there for you. But God, what if I do it again? I don't care what you do again. I need you to know that even when you do it, I'm going to be standing right next to you. This is the good news of Jesus. And then we end up standing in this weird feeling place and, and not many people like it. Total forgiveness. For there's nothing around us anymore because he has paid it all. What do we do in that space? This is the space where we get to be free. Where the shackles are no longer there. They're just a distant memory of the pain of our past. And the temptations that come, if you don't think Jesus is strong enough to get you through those temptations, you might be forgetting about what he did to get you out of them. So stand in that place of forgiveness and remember that it's God and God alone. Your greatest challenge is not your discipline or your devotion or your focus, your white-knuckling religiosity. Your greatest challenge is believing this gospel, that it is God's love. A love so radical and deep and wide that your sin cannot outpace it. Today, after the kids' Easter egg hunt and um, after we drink a bunch of coffee and have some eggs, I want you to remember what you leave at the cross. If you walked over this side, you might have seen that this week I, I massacred our cross outside. Um, I didn't ask for HOA approval because they would not give it to me, I'm sure. So I took red paint in my hands and I just slapped it up where Jesus was hit, right outside here. And then I went to the other side, and paint ended up splattering on me. I, I, have, I went to college twice, but I still can't paint very well. And, and then I put it on his feet, and then I took a big red Sharpie marker, and I started writing some sins on the cross. And then I came in, and I got some of the guys, and I said, hey, go write some of your sins on the cross. And they came out, and I was correcting their spelling because that's what I do do well. No, no, that's, uh, adultery is this way. Idolatry is this way. It's okay, we're going to get that. You just write that, you write spelling on there. <laughs> and it's a hot mess looking cross right now. Then the, the next night, some of the chapel family members sent me a video and text. And it just looked like this. We're here 1030 at night at the chapel. We are going to write our crosses on the sin. I was like, sin on the crosses? Crosses and sin, what are they doing? And they, they wrote on it. I actually found out that I like vandalism, you guys. And today, I want you to like vandalism too. If you are so compelled to walk out to the cross, avoiding the fire anthill maze, and if a sin of yours is already up there, write it again, because tomorrow I'm coming here and I'm painting it over. And I might do this more than once. I might do this until I get my final notice from HOAs and committees and meetings. Because until we start to realize how clean Jesus' blood makes us, we've got to do something to shake ourselves free of the religious shackles. Let me pray and invite up the team. Father, we are here to celebrate today. To celebrate how much you love us 
Lord, so many of us are stuck. We are shackled. We are broken. We have no answers and we are looking for them. I pray that we would run to Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, with this last song, I'm so excited. Help us to celebrate. Help us to celebrate the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus with this gospel-flared song. Help us to realize how much we are loved so that in turn we can begin to love you. In Jesus' name, amen.